Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS. Today, I have with me Adele Webb. Adele, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And I love the opportunity to talk to your members or anybody who may have access and listen to this podcast. Adele, you have a very rich background. I invite you to share now. Tell us about your work and what you do. Well, I've been a nurse a really long time, so I'm not old, but I'm seasoned, right? Well-seasoned. That's <laughs> fine. So am I. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so right now, I'm with Strategic Education Incorporated. I'm the Executive Dean of Healthcare Initiatives. So I am kind of the external face of Capella University. I represent us at all the national meetings. I also work with our healthcare partners, uh, filling gaps for them in education. And so my history a little bit is that, you know, I've taught in a variety of places. I'm an emergency room nurse. Um, my specialty is HIV. I consulted with the World Health Organization for years and have actually um, consulted in 56 countries on nurse capacity building, workforce issues, non-communicable diseases, and HIV. Oh, wow. You have just a tremendous background of and a wealth of knowledge. And today we're going to talk about moral distress, particularly for clinicians and caregivers. So lead us in with, first of all, let's define moral distress. I I know that that sounds really silly because I think we're all feeling it right now, but let's give ourselves a good definition to work from. Sure. So, you know, one of the issues is like so many subjects or topics that we have, there's confusion over how they're defined and how they interact. So a lot of people confuse moral distress with compassion fatigue or maybe Mm -hmm. burnout. Yes. But moral distress is really when you know the right thing to do and you're not able to do it. So it's that level of internal conflict, of frustration, of knowing what you should be doing and not being able for whatever reason to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic... You know, this is something we're going to talk about now, and we're going to talk about it for years from now. But the pandemic has given us new opportunity to experience moral distress in ways that we may not have in our past, especially clinically, but also in the home and in our communities. Let's let's talk now about the impact of the pandemic and our inner workings with moral distress. Sure. So, like you said, moral distress has is always been around, I'm sure. And for healthcare providers, there's some level of it, especially uh, depending on where you work, like maybe in intensive care units or in um, hospice and so on. But during the pandemic, it took on a different face. And this added to knowing how you should care for your patients. It added the component of fear for yourself and your family. So knowing you should care for these patients, but afraid that you could take the virus home. I interviewed lots of nurses about 
how they were feeling. And I didn't call it moral distress. I talked to them about, how are you feeling about providing this care? And they told me that it's like working in a war zone. So, you know, they didn't have the equipment they needed to protect themselves. Often they didn't have the equipment they needed to provide the care. Uh, for instance, ventilators and, and oxygen and so on. Mm-hmm. And then also the, kind of the the fear of what happens to me if I provide this care. And we have patients dying alone. So I have a, a granddaughter who's a nurse in California and works on a COVID-only floor. And she told me she used to go in patients' rooms and sit and chart so they wouldn't be alone. And she would hold phones up to their faces as they mm-hmm. were dying so their family could oh. see them. And think about how long can you do that? Yes. And how does that feel? And knowing as a nurse, you bring compassion to the table. You bring caring to the table. Mm-hmm. And how do you struggle with watching this happen, knowing what you should be doing and not be able to do it? Yes. So with your expertise in HIV, do you see parallels from the pandemic, the early stages, and the concern for, you know, are we able to protect ourselves as clinicians and do what we need to for patients? And way back in the early days of HIV, there were some of those same concerns. Do you see any parallels in how clinicians have pulled together to manage what we don't know about a situation? No, that's interesting because I hadn't really thought about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, very early in the in the HIV epidemic, there was an enormous amount of fear related to, can I get this? Yes. And I actually did a study of some providers who wouldn't even go in rooms, mm-hmm. refused to care. Or if they were providing care, they're sliding trays oh. through a little slit in the door. And um, the enormous fear of mm-hmm. getting HIV. Right. I think the difference is I haven't seen in COVID people refusing to care. And that's kind of interesting. And, you know, that's something I'm going to try and investigate and find out if people are refusing to care for COVID patients. I think another difference, though, in level of fear is at the time, HIV was a death sentence. COVID isn't necessarily, but there is the concern of can I catch this and bring it home? Mm-hmm. And of course, as HIV evolved and we understood, you know, how it was transmitted, that fear started to abate because you really could control Certainly. whether or not you got HIV. With COVID, maybe not so much because even people who are vaccinated are still getting COVID. Yeah. And so Very I tricky think here. <laughs> I saw the fear go down as the vaccine came out, but I see it starting to ratchet back up as vaccinated people are getting sick. Yes. So we have to recognize that moral distress is right here. Um, We are working our way through it um, frequently. What can clinicians do to navigate these times where we're working in situations that do place us at risk, that do cause great fatigue, that do bring us to a place where we don't have what we need or the ability to care for our patients in the way we would like to, what can clinicians do to manage? I think one of the first things we need to do is something we're not good at, and that's giving ourselves a break, mm-hmm. right? Understanding that it's okay to be afraid, and it's mm-hmm. okay to be concerned, and it's even okay to be frustrated, and that's not a failure. And sometimes I think we're really hard on ourselves. 
So recognizing that that, that part of it is okay. But then also understanding what's happening to ourselves. Pay attention. Mm-hmm. So the I think it's the American Association of Ambulatory Care Nurses has a model about moral distress. So it's A-A-A-C-N. And you know, it's it's a really interesting model. So you first ask yourself, what's happening to me? Mm-hmm. And as you sort out, you know, kind of how you feel, recognizing, paying attention to how you feel, and then you affirm, is that really what's wrong? So you really dwell in it and think about it. Then you kind of assess, you know, what can I do about it? And there's mm-hmm. so much we can do, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about that. And um, then the last thing is act. So mm-hmm. do those things. Yes. So one thing I think is is so interesting is if you think about really all companies, but certainly healthcare organizations, we have employee assistance programs. And for some reason, people don't use them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because they think they're not confidential, they don't know what's going to happen to the notes or if they've seen going in or, you know, I don't know why they're not used. And I've looked at the literature and it's a variety of things. But less than 7% of the people, according to the literature, are using these employee assistance programs. And it's there, and it's available, and it's free, and they understand because they're within your organization. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things you can do is rely on people who have the resources to help you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a really hard question, but you're going to make some kind of a guess here, I'm sure. So less than 7% of the people take advantage of EAP, Employee Assistant Programs, what percentage of people need to reach out? Well, (laughs) my and this is a guess, but I would think across the span of a nursing career, 100% of the people, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 100% of the people at some time have been in a situation where you have a patient that you know what you need to do and you're not able to do it, either because of the family Mm -hmm. or because of the orders or because of the situation and the amount of conflict that causes and how easy it would be to address that conflict by talking to the people who have the resources to help you. Yes. You know, there are statistics out that they measured PTSD in kids as young as 15 and found really high levels from ages 15 on of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I think now... About my little grandsons, they're like 9 and 11, and wearing the mask and not understanding and hating every minute of it. And think of what they're going through and how is this going to affect them? And you can't play with your friends and you can't. And so I just see it getting younger and younger as far as who's being affected. But I think the percentages are very high. I would agree. And I was wondering if you were going to say 100% because... As you said, we are all 100% human. We're, we're all 100% there. And at some point in our practice, some point in our lives, we're going to have a situation that takes us to a place where we really do need to reach out. Mm-hmm. Interesting that clinicians don't. Why do you think that is? Well, sometimes I think we're our own worst enemies. You know, just think about, they say nurses are the worst patients, right? <laughs> because we already think we know and we think we can fix it because that's our job. I mean, we're fixers. And there's also the feeling of not wanting to be vulnerable. So I think it's really hard to recognize in ourselves that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think that, you know, there are all kinds of things you can do to address moral distress. And, you know, some of them are so simple. Like when you're feeling absolutely overwhelmed with the situation, and I I want you to try this sometime. Mm -hmm. When you walk down the hall, hum 
hum a song. Because when you're humming, you can't think about anything else. Is that right? It completely clears your mind. And I do, I want you to try it. Adele, I almost want to try it right now, but I'm going to spare <laughs> the audience <laughs> my home. But why, why is that? I don't know why, but I've, I've read so much on it because could it be any easier? Now, you have to watch. Like, I would never hum like it's a small world because you never, ever get that out of your head, especially if you've ever been to Disney. But in taking deep breaths, I mean, things that are so simple that'll help clear your mind. But one of the things that I did once for my staff that was really effective in letting people step away from the situation and get perspective was create something called a Zen room. So you take, I don't care if it's a closet, a really small room and you put a yoga mat on the floor and you have soft lighting and you have one of those plugins that lets off lavender or eucalyptus or something. And you have something that they can play relaxing music and a picture they can have a focal point. And it's a place, and you've heard everybody say this, I just need a minute, right? Mm -hmm. When you need that minute, and it gives you the opportunity to get out of a situation and get perspective, that can really help alleviate some of the mm-hmm. moral distress that you're facing. Yes. And so such easy things we can do. And then depending on where you're at and how deep into moral distress you are, it's beyond you, right? You can mm-hmm. hum all day long and you're still not <laughs> sleeping at night or you're calling off work. And, and that's when you need to, so if you, you ask yourself, if you use that model, what is going on? What am I feeling? And then you affirm that's what's really going on. Then you assess, what can I do? Okay, this is beyond me. I need to go to employee assistance. I need to see someone. Maybe it's a trusted mentor. Maybe it's a peer or a colleague mm-hmm. that does the same thing you do and might be feeling the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there are just such easy ways to start to deal with this. I see nurses leaving the profession because of COVID. Mm-hmm. What a shame. What a shame. You know, you go into nursing for a reason, and when you can't do it, when you see these patients dying alone, when you can't save them, when you don't have what you need, when you can't protect yourself, what are you going to do? Are you going to go work retail? <laughs> are you going to work fast food? Are you going to keep going in every day with that level of frustration, with that level of distress? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to address it and save yourself? Excellent. So you did, yeah, when you started that discussion and you got to the point where you're talking about the Zen room, you were leading me right into my next thought of questions. What more can organizations do to help the nursing workforce? And let's not just stop at nursing. Let's talk about everyone else who is in that organization because everyone feels it. It doesn't matter whether you're a housekeeper or food service, phlebotomy. Everyone feels this. What can the organization do overall to keep their employees balanced and healthy? And I'm so glad you took that beyond nursing into providers because Mm -hmm. you're exactly right. I mean, it's just as stressful being an occupational therapist coming into a room and not knowing mm-hmm. what you're going into, not being able to protect yourself. And, and you know, I always focus on nursing because I'm a nurse mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure. I live nursing. Sure. But you're right. It's beyond that. But, you know, organizations need to take a look at themselves because it's really easy to say, you know, oh, we have adequate staff. Do you really? 
I mean, you need to make sure you have the staff you need. You need to make sure people get their breaks, people get their lunch, people get to go to the bathroom. You need to recognize them for the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, how little time it takes to throw a name in a newsletter and recognize them for excellent Mm -hmm. care Mm -hmm. or for doing something special or for doing their job, you know, for coming in because so many people aren't. You can have a mentor-mentee program. Mm -hmm. So you take these seasoned nurses. And I work with one organization who has a really good program where they take nurses who are ready to retire. Mm -hmm. And they have as part of their job description, so part of their 40-hour week or however you define their FTE, and they mentor young nurses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially during times when, you know, here you have now nurses coming in who did their last year of clinical online. Mm -hmm. So they have no idea. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And I'm so glad right now I'm not a patient, (laughs) to be honest. But, you know, do that mentor-mentee thing. And then research absolutely shows that professional development just helps nurses. It helps with retention. It helps with confidence. It helps with better patient outcomes and quality of care. So give them opportunities. You know, I think about the mandatory things we have to do. So every year we do how to wash your hands and, you know, all of those, I don't know if they're Jacob prescribed or whoever does it, Mm -hmm. but we have our mandatory trainings we do every year. And people, you know, they just breeze through them. They don't even, I don't even know if they pay attention. I'm probably, that's my internalizing. That's what I do. But what about if we did something on caring for yourself? Or how to address moral distress or what moral Mm -hmm. distress is. Or how about if we do something on what an employee assistance program is and what it does and how it's confidential and how you use it. Right. And for most people, uh, it's been a long time since your orientation to the facility. And that's when you learn about EAP. And I think most people forget that it's even available. So having that number available on the back of your badge, you know, whatever it is, just make it available. So you've described some really nice things that are built into the structure of the organization where there are regular recognition approaches and Mm -hmm. and practices that you can do. One thing that I particularly love, I call it, you know, this is something I've kind of uh, named, but it's called caught in the act. Mm. I love just seeing someone doing something, and in the moment, pull them aside and and just say, excellent, good job. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for taking such good care of that patient. And just a couple words means so much in the right moment. It works with children. It works with everybody. It's just, it's like in that moment, you know, speaking to that that good work, that good attitude, innovative thoughts, it, it just is so meaningful. So I I like thinking of caught in the act. I really like that. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't have to be uh, some big accolades in a banquet where everybody gets a crown. Right. You know, it is a $5 Starbucks gift card in a little thank you note, or it's a call out in your weekly newsletter, or it's Mm -hmm. an email to the employee saying, I saw you today. Right. And this is what you did. Or thank you for coming in, or thank you for picking up overtime. Right. The other thing about moral distress that's interesting is that nurses just feel compelled to work, work, work. So, you know, I think about my granddaughter's an example. She's working 512s because she's on a COVID-only floor. Now she's young. Okay, she can do it. But how long 
can you do that? And we have to be able to say, no, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not coming in. No, you need to get enough staff. I think what happens, though, is you're very connected to your fellow clinicians. And there is this sense that you, you know what you're leaving them with if you don't come in. That's exactly right. You, you know the trouble that they're going to have if mm-hmm. they are missing that individual or they um, need to bring in a float person who isn't as familiar with the unit and it, it creates a little bit more need for more conversation, more communication throughout the shift. Um, so all of those things add to the load. So nurses are reluctant to take the break that they need because they know the problem that it's going to cause when they say no. So there are times where it's so easy to say everybody needs to say no, we need to step away, we need to give ourselves rest, but they know the cost that it's going to create for others when they don't, when they, when they do say no. Yeah. And that in itself adds again to moral distress. It's not just not having the ability to care for patients in the way that we would like to care for patients. It's the inability to step away and know that your teammates are going to be okay. And you're right. I mean, that's a whole extra level of, you know, not just are my patients going to be taken care of because some of these, especially during COVID, these are long-term patients. Mm -hmm. They're there a while. You feel a responsibility to them. Mm -hmm. But what about my colleagues? What happens to them when I'm not there? Mm -hmm. And if they don't have enough staff, what's going to happen? You know, I need to go in. I'm a saver. (laughs) I need to go in and, and fix this. So, I mean, there's just a lot this... And this pandemic, I don't know, I feel like it's probably never going to go away. Probably always going to have COVID. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but it sure feels that way. And how long can can we as providers continue to do this? And that's something I think organizations need to think about. How long can we expect our providers to do this? Yes. So Sue Weaver, she's the president of INS. Mm-hmm. She is just adamant about telling nurses to connect with the American Nurses Association because there's a feature that they have, a program that's called Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. Mm-hmm. And everything is free. You ha- there are There's education, there's little challenges, but the whole premise is healthy nurses result in healthy patients. It, it, there's just a, a mm-hmm. wonderful trickle-down effect. But Just getting together with other like-minded people, people who understand the practice of nursing and also understand the things that we let go in order to do what we need to do, like sleep, like eating correctly, like taking a break. Um, So all of the things that we need to do to stay well and healthy we, we stop and consider those things or, or work with others, join a little team online. So um, for our listeners out there, look at the ANA website, look for Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. There's always something available. If it's not a webinar, it's groups to join. There are apps involved that you can um, have little reminders and things. So um, we do need to think about how long the pandemic is going, how long we can keep up and what we need to do to maintain our health, our balance, our well-being, so that we are able to continue to care. You know, that's very true. And the ANA campaign is is wonderful. But I think also 
organ, professional organizations, just like INS, mm-hmm. the kind of support it provides. So it provides that professional development opportunity, but mm-hmm. it provides that camaraderie, opportunities for mentors. I think professional organizations are so important for nurses because now you're with a group of people who are like you. They're doing what you do. They understand what you do. Mm -hmm. They're probably feeling some of what you're feeling. So I think any opportunity to get that kind of support and through professional organizations, I mean, you know, dues aren't expensive for the return on investment Mm -hmm. and all the education that's available. I think that's a huge missed opportunity. And I think young nurses especially need to be mentored in to understanding what professional organizations can do for them. Well said. Thank you for bringing that part up. So Adele, I'm going to ask you for any closing thoughts, anything that you would like to share with our listening audience. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank everyone uh, for who is joining and listening to this. I think the most important thing I can say as I walk away, and it's so easy to say and so hard to do, and that's just take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Because you've heard you can't fill others' cups until you fill your own. So fill your cup and just take care of yourself. It's so important. Thank you so much. Adele, we appreciate you being here. Thank you. And this concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS.